Blog Talk Radio.
and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, April the 17th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. Later on, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the announcement by the international media that the Ukrainian southern city of Maripol has completely fallen uh, to the Russian military forces. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, there is continuing uh, demonstrations uh, demanding justice for the African youth Patrick Leola, who was killed by a white police officer on April the 4th. Somalian lawmakers uh, have agreed on a plan to appoint a new president for the Horn of Africa state. And oil fields in Libya uh, have been shut down as a result of political problems inside this troubled North African state. In the second hour, we look back on a historic speech delivered during April of 1964 by Malcolm X. El-Hajj Malik El-Shabazz was delivered at King Solomon uh, Baptist Church uh, in the city of Detroit entitled Ballots or Bullets. Later, we hear our two other archived addresses by the host, Dabayomi Azikawe, dealing with race and justice in the United States, as well as mass incarceration for profit. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, We'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, music uh, from the Tuareg people of uh, Northwest Africa. Let's listen in.
Thank you very much. You're welcome to the desert.
Scenario and people and desert. <laughs> After you are the shamu, you won't be here anymore.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, music uh, from uh, Turag, uh, people of Northwestern Africa. Uh, great, uh, amazing music uh, from uh, that uh, region of the African continent uh, from a concert. And of course, you can see uh, and hear uh, the connections uh, between uh, African music on an international level, uh, be it uh, traditional. Uh, be it uh, blues, uh, jazz, funk, rock, it's all there. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswise segment. And, of course, uh, the lead story uh, deals with the current situation in the southern port city of Maripol in Ukraine. Uh, Russia has claimed that its troops had cleared the urban area of Maripol, a strategically important port city in southeastern Ukraine setting a deadline for Ukrainian troops in the city uh, to surrender. Some experts consider that the battle could be seen as a crucial turning point for the uh, Ukraine-Russia conflict that would have lasted, uh, that has lasted for two months nearly. Taking Maripol will help lay the foundation of Russia's next phase military operations in the Donbass, and taking the port city could create a land corridor from Lugansk to Donetsk to Crimea. The U.S. and NATO continues to ship weapons to Ukraine. Uh, This will only lead uh, to unpredictable consequences. It will prolong the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, and it is fanning the flames, uh, which also affect the European security framework. In the long term, uh, many experts have warned about this. Russia gave um, the holdout Ukrainian soldiers an ultimatum earlier today to lay down their arms in Maripol, uh, which Moscow said its forces had nearly completely controlled, and what would be its biggest capture of the conflict that lasted, that has lasted uh, nearly two months now. Russian Defense Ministry spokesperson Major General Igor Konashenkov uh, said uh, yesterday that the Ukrainian port city had been completely retaken from the Azov militants, foreign mercenaries, and Ukrainian troops, and the remaining part of the Ukrainian grouping is encircled on the premises of the Azovol Iron and Steel Works, one of Europe's biggest metallurgical plants. That's according uh, to the TASS news agency. Uh, Maripol is a strategic city on the Sea of Azov uh, that Russia has been targeting since the conflict began, as taking the city would help create a land corridor from the People's Republic of Lugansk, the People's Republic of Donetsk, and down uh, to uh, the now uh, Russian-affiliated uh, Crimea. Uh, according to some analysis, uh, this land corridor for Moscow would secure control of the Ukrainian coast on the Sea of Azov and help smooth the supplies uh, by sea. Taking Maripol will help lay the foundation for the next military operation in the Donbass, as various signs showed now that with the military support by the U.S.-led West, Ukraine is going to launch a meaningful military operation in the Donbass in which Russia cannot lose. That's according to a Beijing-based geopolitical affairs expert who preferred uh, not to be identified. Uh, This was told to the Global Times uh, earlier today. The next phase uh, of Russia's military campaign in Ukraine could begin in the next few days. According to NBC News, uh, yesterday uh, they cited two senior U.S. defense officials 
and Ukraine is rapidly running uh, out of artillery and artillery rounds. At the time, U.S. officials assessed the Russians intended to regroup and then began another military operation focusing on the Donbass region and the southeastern region of Ukraine. Uh, the media has been reporting this. The first strategic significance of the Russian occupation of Mariupol is to consolidate the gains of the Crimea uh, struggle in 2014 while restoring Russia's strategic control of the Black Sea area. Uh, Yang Yi, uh, who is director of the Institute of International Affairs at the Renmin University of China, uh, told this to the Global Times earlier today. Taking the port near the entrance of St. Petersburg is also strategically important uh, to deter Sweden and Finland, which have also proposed uh, joining the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Russia recently said that a nuclear-free Baltic region would no longer be possible if Finland and Sweden became NATO members, alluding to additional nuclear deployments in Europe. The uh, USCNBC network said, as the two countries said, uh, their decision on whether to apply for NATO membership would come within a matter of weeks. Wong said that the Ukrainian side will have a new understanding and judgment on the overall situation after Russia takes Mariupol, as the takeover of the port city is not just symbolic but substantive in in reawakening the Ukrainian government to the urgency of the situation and avoiding a misjudgment of Russia's army power. The remaining part of the Ukrainian grouping in Mariupol has been fully encircled on the premises of the Azovstal Iron and Steelworks, the Russian Defense Ministry spokesperson said. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky warned uh, yesterday uh, that negotiations would end if Russian troops killed the remaining forces. While the Russian-Ukraine conflict is not easing, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told the European Union that the U.S. believes the Russian military operations in Ukraine could last through the end of 2022, according to the cable news network. They said this on Friday. At the same time, the United States, along with NATO, ramped up shipments of the most sensitive weapon systems to Ukraine, pushing the crisis into an unpredictable territory. The reason behind the continued supply of weapons to Ukraine by the United States and NATO is that the U.S. does not want the conflict to end soon, as it just wants the fighting to continue so that it could continue imposing sanctions on Russia to drag Russia down and bring Russian President Vladimir Putin down. Uh, This is their strategy, Wong noted. The U.S. is also taking this opportunity to bring down Europe's so-called autonomy and independence and undermine the strategic trust between China and Russia. With all the problems in the domestic uh, U.S. uh, situation, it has to keep deflecting attention and creating wars to make momentum for the midterm elections, he said. And in the United States, almost two years after the brutal lynching uh, by police of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, it seems that the U.S. hasn't seen a slowing of police shootings of innocent people of color, particularly African-Americans. Uh, Yesterday, uh, demonstrators in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, marched for a fifth consecutive day to protest against the fatal police shooting of 26-year-old Congolese refugee Patrick Leola. This occurred on April 4th uh, during a routine traffic stop. The footage of Leola shooting uh, released uh, by the local police department uh, just this last past Wednesday showed a disturbing scene. A young African migrant was forced to lay face down on the ground 
while a white policeman straddled him and then shot him in the back of the head. Many, including Leoya's father, called this an execution. In his 2020 presidential campaign, Joe Biden publicly pledged to fight institutional racism and reestablish a police oversight committee. However, neither of these promises has been kept yet. A Twitter user commented, quote, in eight weeks, Biden has done more for Ukraine than he's done for black Americans in nearly two years. Police shooting is a severe problem in U.S. society. Statistics uh, from several media outlets and independent investigation agencies show that in recent years, about 1,000 people in the United States were killed by police each year. The number in 2021 was 1,019, with no sign of declining. According to an investigation uh, by the Washington Post, even though half the people shot and killed by the police are white, African Americans are twice more likely to be killed by police than white Americans. Lee Heidong, a professor from China's Foreign Affairs University, told the Global Times the U.S. police shootings, particularly of the less powerful social groups, highlights the chronic fetish for guns and racial discrimination in the country's police culture. Lee went on to say that, quote, U.S. police officers are usually quite civil when facing white people, but some of them become so violent when they encounter African Americans. Lee went on to say that this proves the deep-rooted racism in U.S. society is on all levels, be it social, political, or in law enforcement. Discrimination and human rights violations against vulnerable social groups based on race and ethnicity still go on in the United States, but such problems are difficult to eradicate because they are inherent in the country's history since its founding, and racism won't disappear as long as the U.S. still exists. Although racism is highly criticized and condemned in the U.S. media, Examples of such a strict evil constantly appear in the society. Uh, the lawyer's father uh, said through an interpreter on Thursday that he had not believed that there was a, quote, genocide in the United States. What he implies is he, does not, he doesn't believe so now, and his son is a victim of genocide. Ironically, the word genocide is a label the U.S. often uses to attack other countries, but it is now being used by the family member of a victim of human rights abuses uh, to bash Washington. It is quite serious to accuse any country of committing genocide. And unlike Washington, we will use this word with great caution when referring to what is happening with ethnic minorities in the United States. However, it is, it is certain that the United States is making almost no effort to address its human rights issues while making all efforts to attack others. Human rights violations, perhaps that is why tragedies like the killing of George Floyd Patrick, the Oya, keep happening inside the United States. The double standards of the United States elite are not helping to resolve the human rights issues inside the country. The U.S. has turned out to be a disgrace uh, to the cause of human rights, and it is humiliating itself by boasting of itself as a beacon uh, for human rights. Throughout the country's history, the United States has committed a series of human rights abuses, from genocide against Native Americans widespread discrimination against black people to the ubiquitous marginalization of ethnic minorities. This all shows that the United States human rights conditions are rather poor. Washington is definitely not qualified to proclaim itself as a human rights defender or a straight A student on human rights in the world. That's according to Lee. Listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the 
Pan-African Journal. In the Horn of Africa state of Somalia, a newly elected parliament members convened for the first time yesterday, bringing the war-ravaged nation a step closer to completing the drawn-out process of appointing a new president. Elections in Somalia follow a complex, indirect model, whereby state legislatures and clan delegates pick lawmakers for the national parliament, who in turn choose the president. Nearly 300 lawmakers were sworn in on Thursday, already more than a year behind schedule, after a chaotic voting process that has been undermined by deadly violence and a power struggle between the current president and the prime minister. International partners, including the United Nations, the African Union Mission in Somalia, Amazon, the European Union, and a host of foreign governments have welcomed the recent developments. Saturday's parliamentary session set the ball rolling for the election of speakers for the lower and upper houses before they sit to choose a new president. A date for choosing the new president has yet to be set. The parliamentary election should have been completed before President Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed's term expired in February of 2021. But political infighting stymied the process and the president's mandate expired without a vote taking place. Mohammed, better known as Farmajo, tried to extend his rule by decree but faced protest and violent opposition in Mogadishu where rival political factions fought on the streets. Under pressure from the international community, he appointed Prime Minister Mohammed Hussein Rabla to seek consensus on a way forward, but disagreements between the two men hindered progress. The bitter spat between Roble and Farmajo stoked fear of further instability in the Horn of Africa country, which is battling a decade-long Islamist insurgency and the threat. And, of course, uh, finally, in the North African state of Libya, the National Oil Company said earlier today it was forced to shut down an oil field amid a political impasse that threatened to drag the North African nation back into a full-blown armed conflict. The state-run National Oil Corporation said a group of people entered Alfil Fields in the country's south on Saturday, effectively stopping production. It didn't say who the people were or whether they were armed. But traditional leaders in the southern region announced Saturday the closure of the field in a video statement and demanded the sacking of Mustafa Sanala, chairman of the National Oil Corporation. They also demanded what they described as the fair distribution of oil revenues to Libya's three main regions. They also called for embattled Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Beba uh, to hand over power to the parliament-appointed government of rival Prime Minister Fatih Bashaga. Uh, there was no immediate comment from the, the Baba government. The corporation announced a force majeure at the field, a legal maneuver uh, that enables a company to get out of its contract obligations because of extraordinary circumstances. It called for rival parties to keep conflicts out of the oil sector to save its already dilapidated infrastructure. It was not immediately clear how many barrels of production Libya will lose because of the shutdown. The country's production has previously uh, been at about 1.2 billion barrels per day. Uh, Marie Bredan, uh, head of the Oil Workers Union, in the Zutina terminal on the Gulf of Sirte, meanwhile said protesters blocked the terminal earlier today and prevented workers from shipping a tanker carrying 1 million barrels worth of crude, according to local news outlet Fawazel Media. Bashaga, 
was named prime minister in February by the House of Representatives, which has been based in Tobruk. Beba, uh, who is based in the capital of Tripoli, has refused to step down and insists he will hand over power only to an elected government. Over the past two months, divisions among Libyan factions have deepened, uh, with militias mobilizing, especially in the western region. Uh, that has raised fears that fighting could return after more than a year and a half of uh, some type of ceasefire. Now, the closure earlier today comes as the Russian intervention in Ukraine has rattled markets worldwide, causing crude oil prices to soar above $106 per barrel. Last month, an armed group shut down Alfil and another critical oil field, Sharara, Libya's largest, before reopening in a few days later following negotiations led by traditional leaders. Libya's prized light crew has long featured in the North African country's civil war, uh, with rival militias and foreign powers jostling for control of Africa's largest oil reserves. The oil-rich North African country has been wrecked by conflict since the Pentagon, Central Intelligence Agency, and NATO-backed counter-revolution uh, bombed the country for seven months, killing 50 to 100,000 people, displacing 2 million others, and assassinated the longtime leader, uh, Muammar Gaddafi. The country has been for years since 2011 uh, split between rival administrations in the East and West, both of whom are supported uh, by militias and various uh, foreign. With that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people Throughout the continent and the world, the press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, the Pan-African Newswire has published thousands upon thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you want to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can keep abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to today's uh, Pan-African Journal, the special uh, worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, uh, April 17, uh, 2022, all you need to do is go to our website, and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. And uh, that is at um, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-africanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-africanjournal. We'll take a break. Uh, We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and of course, uh, that was uh, music from the legendary John Lee Hooker. Uh, they call me Mr. Lucky. And uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcasting special edition of our program. And of course, uh, we are here uh, doing uh, what we can uh, to enlighten and, of course, to bring uh, much uh, desired uh, processes uh, that are definitely needed uh, inside uh, the United States and indeed uh, inside uh, the world. And, uh, of course, uh, we are right now uh, going to bring you an address uh, that uh, was delivered uh, by yours truly uh, some years uh, back, uh, but we feel still has uh, relevance. Uh, to the current situation uh, that is taking place uh, inside the United States. And, of course, um, inside the United States now, there's still a serious, serious problem uh, with uh, police violence against African Americans. There's also a serious problem uh, with uh, the whole issue of uh, mass incarceration. Uh, So we're going to uh, listen to uh, an address Uh, that uh, was delivered uh, in the Midtown uh, District of Detroit, uh, which is, uh, of course, surrounded uh, by uh, many uh, cultural institutions and, of course, uh, many uh, commercial institutions as well. In August of uh, 2016, um, the First Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, during their Sunday services, invited uh, Abayomi Azikwe uh, to provide uh, the message of the day. Uh, The topic was race, class, and justice in America. Uh, Let's listen in to this address. To send me a bio, he sent a list that was pretty much 500 words long. So I will share some of what was listed there. Abayomi Azikwe is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire and a co-founder of several Detroit area organizations, including the Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality, 
the Michigan Emergency Committee Against the War and Injustice, the Moratorium Now Coalition to Stop Foreclosures, Evictions, and Utility Shutoffs. He is a graduate of Wayne State University where he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, public administration, and educational and administrative studies. He has worked as a broadcast journalist for the past 17 years and has hosted and co-hosted programs on several radio stations locally and in Canada. He has appeared on numerous television and radio networks, including Al Jazeera, CCTV, BBC, NPR, Radio Netherlands, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Belgian Pirate Radio, TBC, Nigeria, and many more. He has published numerous articles, pamphlets, and books on African affairs. Azikwe has traveled extensively in Africa, conducting field research on political economy and history. I know Mr. Azikwe best as the voice on the megaphone leading the MLK march through the streets of Detroit each January. He is one of Detroit's rare activists who seem to have the ability to be in multiple places at once. Please welcome now Abayomi Azikwe. Good morning. I want to thank uh, Nita for that very uh, generous uh, introduction. And I'm gratified um, to honor uh, once again another invitation uh, to the Detroit uh, Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, where I've spoken uh, before uh, from this pulpit as well as other areas of this uh, historic structure. It is important uh, that this institution remain within this area uh, that is now known as uh, Midtown. Uh, the Unitarian uh, Universalist Church uh, has been a beacon of solidarity uh, with an open door to those uh, who have ideas and personal instincts that challenge uh, the dominant intellectual and spiritual canons uh, that have shaped the United States and the world uh, over the last uh, several centuries. Now our topic uh, today uh, addresses three of the most important unresolved questions of the 21st century, where we find ourselves uh, in a global community uh, with the capacity to rapidly and effectively communicate and to influence those around the world. Despite, uh, though, our technological achievements and the ability to generate, uh, to calculate, to analyze, to disseminate, and defiled data, the world system of capitalism has failed miserably uh, to provide an adequate standard of living to the majority of humanity around the world. And that includes right here in the United States. Right here in the city of Detroit, people are being driven out uh, through state-sponsored efforts that utilize 
tax revenue of working families, uh, to evict and displace those who are literally paying for their own oppression and exploitation. Thousands more remain without water right here in this city due to the egregious cutoffs. And in the case of Flint, where the water is not even fit to drink. Although there have been uh, nine indictments uh, related uh, to the Flint uh, water crisis, uh, there's been a civil suit as well filed by the Michigan Attorney General, uh, Bill Schutte, uh, in Lansing. Uh, objectively, there's been no real effort uh, that has uh, been undertaken to rebuild the majority African-American city of Flint as a wholesome and safe place to live and work. Now a situation has arose uh, over the disposal of trash in Flint as well, compounding the problems related to lead poisoning in children, Legionnaire's disease, skin problems, and inflated water bills for an unclean product that uh, in many cases cannot even be utilized. How, I ask, uh, can the treatment of people in major metropolitan industrial and service center areas be allowed to deteriorate to such a degree without high level officials being held accountable by their fellow politicians and by the court system? Where does the federal government step in to ostensibly, ostensibly protect the civil rights of ordinary residents from tyranny, the tyranny of their local governments and private corporations? The wealthiest people within society today are excused from paying adequate taxes and are allowed to expropriate the working people and the poor, many of whom are black and brown. Now, the question of race, class, and justice in America go to the cornerstone of the challenges that we faced uh, here in the United States and indeed internationally in the second decade of the 21st century. I want to make reference to uh, race as a social construct. Now, race as a biological construct has been largely discredited uh, by modern historians and social scientists, evolutionary biologists, and geneticists. Nonetheless, um, in the modern period, uh, there have been uh, so-called scholars, and I put that uh, term in quotes, that have suggested that African people are inherently inferior to Europeans. Now, these uh, pseudo-scientific and racist academic arguments are advanced uh, utilizing the tools of the research academies without providing adequate controls or acknowledgments of the socio-historical circumstances surrounding the nationally oppressed communities. By attributing a biological basis for performance, the incapacity uh, for integration, and actuality provides a rationale for the maintenance and even the reinforcement of the social status quo in America. In fact, these arguments of African inferiority were utilized to justify the enslavement of millions of people within North America, as well as throughout the entire Western Hemisphere, in South America, in Central America, in the Caribbean. 
The belief that Europeans only have something to offer the peoples of the oppressed world and nothing to learn from them is not a view based on historical assessment, but one rooted in the colonial and imperialist thought processes. Now, although historians of Western civilization uh, trace its antecedents back to ancient Greece, they fail to cite the writings of many of the historians and philosophers, such as Herodotus, who wrote in first-hand accounts on their travels to Egypt in the 5th century BC. Herodotus's observations are at variance with the notions of an uncivilized and inferior people. Of course, many Western historians have claimed that in the past that Herodotus was just a storyteller. He was not only one who wrote off the ancient Egyptians and Ethiopians uh, as, of course, being the progenitors of world civilization and wrote about them in, in, in very glowing terms in his books. Now, in the modern period, a man by the name of Arthur Jensen uh, in a 1969 article that was published in the Harvard Educational Review, suggested that African Americans, uh, based upon their general performance on IQ tests, had lower capacity for learning than did whites. One must keep in mind that this theory generated much controversy, and it came out during a period of militant mass struggle against racism by the African American people. Another ideological and pseudo-scientific racist, uh, the late uh, William Shockley, who did work on the transistors uh, in the 1950s and the 1940s, also advanced similar views on African-American genetic inferiority. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, based in uh, Alabama, uh, which monitors racist organizations and racist thoughts, it says on its website that, quote, despite having no training whatsoever in genetics, biology or psychology, Shockley devoted the last decades of his life in a quixotic struggle to prove that black Americans were suffering from, quote, dysgenesis, unquote, or, quote, retrogressive evolution, unquote, and advocated replacing the welfare system with a, quote, voluntary sterilization bonus plan, unquote, which, as its name suggests, would, play, would pay low IQ women to undergo sterilization. Although his theories were universally condemned uh, by biologists and racists as racist pseudoscience, Shockley partly succeeded in rehabilitating eugenics as an ideology by providing the foundation for a new, more politically savvy generation of academic racists, including Arthur Jensen, who we mentioned earlier, uh, Richard Lynn, as well as Charles Murray, unquote. Now, this same uh, Southern Poverty Law Center website also says that, quote, William Shockley's importance in the development of modern electronics cannot be overstated. While working at Bell Labs during the 1940s and 1950s, Shockley led the team that invented the transistor, for which he and his collaborators won numerous prizes and awards. In 1965, however, some 51 years ago, Shockley's career took an abrupt turn from an internationally famous physicist to a racist crank when he gave an address at a Nobel conference on genetics and the future of man. In his lecture, Shockley warned of the threat of a, quote, genetic deterioration, unquote, and, quote, evolution in reverse, unquote. 
problems exacerbating, he claimed, by the Great Society welfare programs that allow the less genetically fit to reproduce at will, free from the constraints of natural selection, unquote. Just within the last two decades, another book written under the cloak of academic legitimacy entitled The Bell Curve is described as follows uh, by the IntelTheory.com website. It says, quote, The Bell Curve, uh, which was published in 1994, was written by Richard Hernston and Charles Murray as a work designed to explain, using empirical statistical analysis, the variations in intelligence in American society. It raises some warnings regarding the consequences of this intelligence gap and proposed national social policy with the goal of mitigating the worst of the consequences attributed to this intelligence gap. Many of the assertions are put forward and conclusions reached by the authors are very controversial, ranging from the relationship between low-measured intelligence and what they describe as antisocial behavior to the observed relationship between low African-American test scores compared to whites and Asians and genetic factors and intelligence abilities. The book was released and received with a large public response. In the first several months of its release in 1994, 400,000 copies of the book were sold around the world. Several thousand reviews and commentaries have been written in the short time since the book's publication Unquote. Now, what does this really mean? The whole notion of academic racism and pseudoscientific racism and the whole concept of race. Well, in my opinion and in the opinion of many others, race in actuality is a social construct. It is designed to rationalize and justify the political and social and economic status quo that we find in the United States and indeed the world. W.B. Du Bois, uh, who was born in uh, 1868 in the immediate aftermath of the U.S. Civil War in Massachusetts, was a Harvard graduate uh, who in 1896 wrote his doctoral dissertation on the suppression of the Atlantic or the African slave trade. Some seven years later in his work entitled Souls of Black Folk, he foresaw the role of racism within the global oppressive system over the course of the 20th century. Du Bois said in chapter two of this seminal work entitled The Souls of Black Folk that quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, the relation of the darker to the lighter races of men in Asia and Africa, in America and the islands of the seas. It was a phase of this problem that caused the Civil War. However much they who marched south and north in 1861 may have fixed on the technical points of the union and local autonomy as a shillabut, all nevertheless knew, as we know, that the question of Negro slavery was the real cause of the conflict. Curious it was, too, how this deeper question even forced itself to the surface despite efforts and disclaimer. No sooner had northern armies touched southern soil than this old question, newly guised, sprang from the earth. What shall be done with Negroes? Peremptory military commands this way and that could not answer the query. Du Bois goes on to say the Emancipation Proclamation seemed 
but to broaden and intensify the difficulties. And the war amendments made the Negro problems of today, unquote. He wrote this 113 years ago. Today in 2016, I would venture to say that the problem of racism and racial discrimination continues into the second decade of the 21st century. The disproportionate rates of police killings, vigilante violence, and incarceration are a reflection of the systematic racial profiling and a culture of impunity directed against African Americans. Moreover, the failure of the local, state, and governmental structures to address the issues is even a far greater crime, in my opinion. The votes of the African American people directed towards the Democratic Party, for all its intents and purposes, objectively mean very little. Beyond the symbolism of the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia a week before last, where many African Americans are served as delegates and spoke from the rostrum, what they carried away back to their home areas in all likelihood will not amount to much in the way of political capital, let alone financial resources. These factors within the context of the broader political landscape guides us into the second area of concern today, and that is, how does race and class merge into a system of national discrimination and economic exploitation? For nearly two and a half centuries, the African people in North America were subjected to British and American slavery and colonialism. Even with the much heralded War of Independence, from 1776 to 1783, African people remained enslaved by the newly formed United States of America. Was this a real revolution or a counter-revolution against the gradual disillusion of the British slave system in Europe and the possibility of its extending into colonies of North America and the Caribbean? This is a thesis uh, put forward by Professor Gerald Horn, uh, who is an African-American historian, and he makes this assertion in a book entitled The Counter-Revolution of 1776. It would take another 90 years after the independence of the United States, after the consolidation of the victory by the Americans over the British to end slavery in the United States. There was a civil war between 1861 and 1865, one of the bloodiest encounters ever on United States soil, to end the legalized human trafficking and bondage. The Civil War cannot be viewed separate from the two centuries of African resistance to slavery. The Civil War, of course, was the outcome of this resistance. In the 19th century alone, the impact of the Haitian Revolution of 1804, Gabriel's insurrection in Virginia in 1800, which was influenced by the Haitian Revolution, which began in 1791. Also the rebellion, uh, which was also influenced uh, by the Haitian Revolution along the German coast of Louisiana near New Orleans in 1811. There was, of course, the alleged African Methodist Episcopal Church-based conspiracy organized by Denmark Vesey in Charleston, South Carolina in 1822. The Nat Turner Revolt, of Southampton County, Virginia in 1831, along with John Brown and his comrades raid on Harper Ferry, Virginia in 1859, often considered the opening shots of the Civil War. All of these historical occurrences played a pivotal role in the un 
ultimate battles that although not necessarily intending to do so, resulted in the destruction of slavery as a profitable economic system. Nonetheless, it will take another century after 1865 for the failed process of reconstruction to reemerge during the 1950s into the 1960s. Even with the passage of a series of civil rights bills from 1957 to 1968, a white backlash to the struggle for equality and self-determination would place obstacles uh, in the path of the African-American people and, of course, uh, the, their total liberation. Now, to sum up uh, these issues, we, of course, must deal with the question of American justice and social transformation. Perhaps the most blatant form of national oppression has been illustrated over the last several years through the acceleration of police killings of African Americans. Overall, over 1,000 people were killed during 2015 by law enforcement agents in the United States, both black and white and brown. A disproportionate amount of these victims were from African American communities. Of course, this is spraying into existence the Black Lives Matter movement, the anti-racist struggle which has swept the United States, and of course one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, a woman by the name of Alicia Garza, said of uh, the current presidential race uh, that is taking place here in the United States that the Democratic Party utilizes African Americans, their votes, but has very little to offer them in terms of social policy and advancements. In concluding, I would just like to say, therefore, I believe that the path to African-American liberation is through independent mass organizations and mobilizations. How many times are we to be subjected to the lies and the broken promises of a bipolar, supposedly bipartisan political system in the United States what do we get for our votes and our tax dollars? More repression, more poverty, and more political disempowerment. The changing character of the world economic system requires new approaches to politics that proceed from the ground up and not vice versa. As long as we wait uh, for the wealthy and their surrogates to bring about our freedom, we will remain in neo-slavery and neo-colonialism. Independent politics and organization requires new thinking. It demands that full participation of the most impacted and oppressed as the leadership of the struggle come to the fore. Absent of these essential ingredients, we cannot move forward beyond the contemporary political impasse. Finally, let us begin the process of renewal and the regeneration of ideas and work processes where we take responsibility for the liberation from oppression and economic exploitation. We need this to become a reality, and this line of march can ensure that we take control of both our present and our future. Thank you so much for your attention. Have a good day. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, yours truly uh, speaking uh, in uh, 2016, uh, during an election year, <laughs> at, uh, of course, the First Unitarian Universalist Church located in Midtown in Detroit. 
And uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program uh, for uh, this week. And, of course, are you listening to the Pan-African Journal, the special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast.
Welcome back. And uh, Detroit's own Anita Baker, how does it feel? Well, we feel just great uh, here at the Patent African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, Sunday, April 17th. 2022, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of our program. If you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Journal, all you need to do is go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We're also hosted on a numerous other uh, platforms, uh, Listen Notes, uh, Apple uh, Podcasts, uh, iHeartRadio, Player.fm, uh, TuneIn.com. So look for uh, the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast. Our next uh, segment uh, is uh, also an address uh, by yours truly, Abayomi Azikawe at the uh, First Unitarian Universalist Church again uh, in the Midtown District of Detroit. Uh, This address uh, was delivered as the message of the day at the uh, First Unitarian Universalist Church. And, of course, uh, it is entitled Mass Incarceration for Profit. Uh, This address was delivered on February the 18th of 2018, History Month. And uh, one and a half years after the previous address on race, uh, class, and justice in America. Let's listen in. Abayomi Azikwe is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire and co-founder of several Detroit area organizations. The Detroit Coalition Against Police Brutality, the Michigan Emergency Committee Against Warren and Justice, the Moratorium Now Coalition to Stop Foreclosures, Evictions, and Utility Shutoffs. He is a graduate of Wayne State University, where he earned undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science, public administration, and educational and administrative studies. Isikwe has worked as a broadcast journalist for many years and has hosted and co-hosted programs on several radio stations locally and in Canada. He has appeared on numerous television and radio networks, including Al Jazeera, CCTV, BBC, NPR, Radio Netherlands, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, Belgian Private Radio, TBC Nigeria, and others. He has published numerous articles, pamphlets, and books on African affairs. He has traveled extensively in Africa, conducting field research on political economy and history. Please welcome this morning, Abayomi Azikwe. Good morning. I want to thank uh, the church for inviting me uh, once again uh, to this uh, service. And, of course, I want to express my deep appreciation uh, to the First uh, Unitarian Universalist Church of Detroit uh, for extending yet another invitation uh, for me to speak uh, from this pulpit. Now, this institution 
remains a vital source of inspiration for people uh, here in the city of Detroit uh, from various backgrounds, providing a platform for progressive ideas and social movements. This is very critical uh, during this time period in the United States. As the United States uh, faces profound challenges uh, in the areas of race relations, class exploitation, the denial of rights uh, to immigrants, to women and other marginalized groups in our society, there's also the threat of world war and other potential calamities. It is of utmost importance and necessity that those concerned with advancing society towards a sustainable peace and a social equilibrium have the opportunity to discuss these issues in a calm and reasonable fashion. Now, much of the discourse uh, within the corporate and governmental control media does not lend itself to finding solutions to the monumental problems we are grappling with in these contemporary times. On a daily basis, uh, we are bombarded with images of displacement, of dislocation, of injuries, of death, and destruction. Although our country, the United States, is touted as a, quote, peaceful, unquote, and, quote, prosperous, unquote, country, the wealthiest nation in the world, so we hear, there's much uncertainty among the people in this country. There's tremendous amounts of fear, trepidation, and social alienation. The regularity of mass shootings, which we saw just this last past week, the proliferation of domestic violence, racial antagonisms, misogyny, and other forms of bigotry contradicts the official narrative, which permeates the propaganda that is advanced uh, by the mass media, by the press, and especially the spokespersons for the administration in Washington, D.C. A cloud of routine avoidance of the real issues which concern humanity represents a dangerous phenomenon. We have heard repeatedly from the Oval Office of President Donald Trump that the economy is booming with unemployment being at its lowest level in history, this is accompanied by business confidence at new levels in regard to investment and job creation. Of course, these claims are not accurate. Even if they were, it would not automatically wipe away the tears of the family members and friends of those killed recently in the school shootings in South Florida. Such fabrications cannot provide food, clothing, and shelter to the tens of millions of impoverished people in this country and the billions more around the world. These delusions of grandeur cannot cover up the loss of life in the theaters of war, which the Pentagon is involved in throughout the Middle East, Central America, Asia, as well as Latin America and Africa. The millions who are suffering in our society from the rising tide of racism and all forms of oppression cannot gain solace from the continued enrichment 
of a small minority of the population, which shows blatant disregard and even contempt for the conditions of the downtrodden and the destitute. Even here in the city of Detroit, where we live, the conditions and concerns of the majority African-American population goes unheeded. The elusive emphasis by the powers that be is placed on making Detroit whiter and wealthier. When an assertion is made that African-American unemployment is at its lowest level in history, we must recognize this is another falsehood emanating from a distorted view of the origin and development of America as a nation state. Now, this is important in light of the fact that we are now celebrating African American History Month, uh, which was started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926 as Negro History Week. And of course, in 1976, this was expanded to Black History Month. So we have to get our historical facts correct. In fact, Africans were the only people brought to the shores of the former British colony of Virginia and other such outposts during the 17th and the 18th centuries with a full-time job, waiting for them on the tobacco, sugar, and later cotton plantations of the East Coast and the South, a full-time job with no pay, working from sunup to sundown under the most horrendous and exploitative conditions. I would like to discuss the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which ostensibly freed Africans from enslavement in the United States in 1865 after the Civil War. Of course, this is a dubious amendment to the U.S. Constitution, and we'll discuss this in a few minutes. Now, this year represents the 150th anniversary of the later passed in 1868 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution which was ratified uh, by the required number of states in 1868. Ostensibly, the 14th Amendment provided citizenship to African people who had been subjected to enslavement for two and a half centuries. Nonetheless, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which was passed by Congress, was designed to essentially provide the same guarantees related to due process, the non-discrimination, providing the federal government, and its three branches of the executive, the legislative, and judicial structures to enforce these measures and to take punitive action against any persons or institutions which sought to deny African people such inherent privileges, so they said. Just three years prior to the enactment of the 14th Amendment into federal law, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution was passed in January by Congress and ratified later in December of 1865. This measure was supposedly designed to legally free Africans from slavery. However, a careful reading of the 13th Amendment illustrates its dubious character, language which both frees people from involuntary servitude yet making exceptions under the guise of criminal conviction and sentencing. The 13th Amendment reads in Section 1, and I quote, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime 
whereas whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States, nor any place subject to their jurisdiction, unquote. Then Section 2 of the 13th Amendment continues by saying, quote, Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation, unquote. Now, understanding this contradictory character of the 13th Amendment sheds light on the utilization of the criminal justice system and the perpetuation of bondage for the purpose of institutional racism as well as class exploitation. Why was it necessary, I ask, to include language which maintained involuntary servitude within the prison system? Any answer to this question must begin with the explanation that slavery, above all else, was an economic system. It is a mode of, of relationships and produ of production, which is designed for the maximization of profit, profit, profit for the few landholding gentry. It was the triangular trade and chattel slavery which provided the wealth that spawned the rise of industrial monopoly capitalism beginning in the 19th century. Since this is African American History Month, I want to quote briefly from two leading African historians who documented this transformative economic process during the 1930s and 1940s. These scholars and political actors were Dr. W.B. Du Bois of the United States and Dr. Eric Williams of the Caribbean island nation of Trinidad and Tobago. Du Bois, in his pioneering work entitled Black Reconstruction in America, an essay towards a history of the part in which black folk played in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in America from 1860 to 1880, this book was published in 1935 at the height of the Great Depression, says that, quote, slowly but mightily, these black workers were integrated into modern industry. On free and fertile land, Americans raised not simply sugar as, as a cheap sweetening, rice for food and tobacco as a new and tickling luxury, but they began to grow a fiber that clothed the masses of a ragged world. Cotton grew so swiftly that 9,000 bales of cotton, which the new nation scarcely noticed in 1791, became 79,000 by 1800. And with this increased, walked economic revolution in a dozen different directions. The cotton crop reached one half million bales by 1822, a million bales by 1831. 2 million by 1840, 3 million by 1852, and in the year of the succession of the 11 uh, Confederate states, stood at the then enormous total of 5 million bales per annum. Such facts and others, Du Bois continues, coupled with the increase of the slaves to which they were related as both cause and effect, meant a new world, and all the more so because with increased American cotton production and African slaves came both by chance and ingenuity which spawned new miracles for manufacturing and particularly for the spinning and the weaving of cloth, unquote. This same study continues noting in regard to our subject today that, quote, as slavery grew to a system 
and the cotton kingdom began to expand into imperial white domination, a free Negro was a contradiction. He was a threat and a menace as a thief and, an, and as a vagabond. He threatened society. 